Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss this is the problem with humor is it's always a fear that it undermines something so much it destroys it but very often it undermines it just enough to make it bearable to keep doing welcome to the humorology podcast with me paul barros and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business sport and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a multi-award winning comedian, author and broadcaster. As co-presenter of Radio 4's The Infinite Monkey Cage with Professor Brian Cox, some people say that he has helped to make science sexy. He's been described by The Guardian as a Bicardigand polymath who has been expanding the universe of stand-up. As a comedian, he has a legion of fans at the top tables of the comedy world, including being the support act of choice for both Ricky Gervais's politics and fame tours. He is quite possibly the UK's best read comedian and has written one of the preeminent books about the sometimes bewildering and baffling battle of being human. Robin Ince, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Hello there. Lovely to have you here. Um, I mentioned the book and I'm a huge fan of I'm a Joke and So Are You. Uh, the subheading of the book is a comedian's take on what makes us human. What part does humour play in making us human? I think it's such a vital part, isn't it? We see it observed in so few other animals. Now, that doesn't mean it's not there, but, I mean, we do see kind of... We, we see it in certain uh, other mammals. We see it... Tickling of rats, of course, is a fascinating thing to see about their, their uh, uh, ability, at least, to laugh. Um, but I think it shows... One of the reasons I think humour exists, basically, is because we have this strange battle between our inner life and our outer life. We have this person that we present uh, to the world, and we have all of these voices inside our head. And I think a lot of what humour is sometimes negatively and sometimes positively is the release of the voices in our head 
I actually love the quote in the book, which is, if jokes are so unimportant, why do people get so exercised by them? And why do certain dictatorships ban them and um, imprison the tellers? Well, see, so, see, that was a lovely one, because the day that I was... Uh, the day the book came out, I think it was, uh, was the day that... Because I, I made it... I, I think somewhere in that passage is a little joke about, the you know, if a dictator ever walks out onto the balcony and he has a piece of toilet paper stuck on his shoe then you know everyone is basically immediately killed and uh, uh and there's a kind of a long piece about that and that was the same day that donald trump walked up the airplane steps with what appeared to be a piece of toilet paper so there was a wonderful piece of uh synchronicity uh in terms of those moments but it is that's what i, I find that anger and i think it must be partly a tribal anger and it's partly an anger of rejection as you will know underneath articles about comedians uh there will always be people who say this person is not funny not i don't find them funny because as we know it is a subjective thing but the fury whether it's about Mrs. Brown's boys or whether it's about Stuart Lee, that people have to, you know, you, you can see people wanting to go round an auditorium when three and a half thousand people are laughing, going, stop laughing, don't you understand? It's not funny. And so I think it's a very interesting thing about that level of how we feel rejection if we don't see the joke. And of course, equally, how the problem we seem to have, which is we are very good at making jokes at other people, and when someone makes a joke at us, then it's not fair. You know, I, th I think in the bit where I, I spoke to Ricky uh, Gervais, that there's a, where we talk about the fact, it might not have made the edit, because like every book I write, it was about 100,000 words more than were required, uh, and I had to just hack away. But there was an interesting thing where he does lots of stuff in his uh, stand-up, which people find a bit offensive, and that's part of his kind of shtick. And of course, everyone loves it until it gets to their group. And they go, I loved all those jokes that you did about, you know, fat people or whatever it might be. But then you made a joke about me and I am not happy. And, th and the fact that we're not able to understand that it's not that that joke's in worse taste. It's because that joke's about us is, is, again, part of the fascinating psychology of it, I think. It's also fascinating to me that... Um dictators don't seem to like that seems to be the one Achilles heel. Um, do you think that things like the Lincoln Project actually had an effect on Trump? I, I think he does. He doesn't have a sense. Of, it's interesting when you see people with a sense of humour, like, you know, Barack Obama clearly had a sense of humour. He could deliver a joke. Um, yeah, one of the, the interesting conversations I had with it with a Jungian therapist was uh, he said the most interesting people are not people who tell jokes it's people who actually can't tell a joke and you will see that quite often politicians we see it a lot you see those awful you know where someone's script written their gags for the big occasion and you can see that they don't really understand the words they don't really understand that it's a punchline and then that is the bit which you meet you know when, when you see that and especially when you then see the sycophantic laughing that goes with a, a failed joke it's a, a horrendous thing see but it's, i've always been you know the, the number we, we've seen it across the world I, i'm trying to remember the name of a comedian in in in, in burma back in in uh, about 20 years ago spent a long time uh in, in, in prison there's a wonderful book called hammer and tickle which is about jokes in communist russia 
uh and and again and and that's part of sometimes when we're joking about uh i suppose dictators part of it is it does also give us that excitement that you're doing something that's very naughty as well and it's your one way of surviving slavos zizek talks about that a lot in his books he loves putting jokes in, into uh his, his books of uh of philosophy and political philosophy and i think yeah they are they're interesting both the coping mechanism and as a weapon yeah, I think that's right. And it, I mean, I remember under our apartheid that there was no theatre and no comedy allowed. And a friend of mine ran a club which was theatre and with a bit of comedy. And he had to escape for, because of the regime were coming down on him like a ton of bricks. They really didn't like being sent up. I suppose you, people feel out of control. And if you haven't got a sense of humour, you can't play back and I, I think um i was talking to john sweeney on this uh, podcast the um ex-panorama guy and he said uh something that uh trump never surrounded himself with anybody else who was funny so they didn't know how to play back against the lincoln project and if you surround yourself with people who aren't funny that's going to make you more insular and more insecure about it don't you think yeah, well, I, I think you can't surround yourself with people who are funny because you actually would not understand what was going on. You would constantly feel nervous because you wouldn't be able to translate the words that were coming out of their mouth. So you have to surround yourself with these strange... I mean, it's fascinating watching the people now in, in Biden's cabinet and, and watching now the presentation of the press conference because already there is a sense of, of, of wit there's and and it's the speed of the mind as well because i think that's one of the threats of of comedy quite often is um that it requires a fast reaction it requires you know our, our favorite comedians are people we go oh my how did they manage to do that and many of these pompous people are are slow-witted and they are deliberately as well targeting people who similarly can be easily manipulated because you can give them things that make no sense whatsoever uh, but they're attached to some form of nationalism or some kind of racism or whatever it might be I, I do think that people who are good at telling jokes and good at reacting that there is uh, an intelligence there which is threatening as well and I think that's part of the threat as well when someone cannot understand why someone else is funny part of what they think they're being told is you're an idiot how do you not understand this? You're an idiot. And that might not be being said, but that's what it's a bit like. I, I would compare it to when someone says that they're a vegetarian, when they're turning down some kind of, you know, veal treat that's offered to them. People see that as, as like, they go, oh, so you're calling me a murderer because I, I eat beef or whatever. And you go, no, 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 I'm not. I'm just, just saying I, I don't. It becomes a question of who you are, whether that question is actually there or not. So do you think that, that people are born funny? It, is there is uh, from your neuroscience investigations? Do you think there is some kind of DNA in there that that makes people have a wit? No, I think as everything with the nature and nurture debate, it's a right old mess and it gets <laughs> messier. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about biology. You know, biology has managed to come up with, you know, th th this incredible unified answer in terms of evolution by natural selection. But in finding that answer, it's made everything within it really messy. I think more often than not, a lot of art and from my study, comedy, there is something, it is a nurture situation that there is a lot of creative people 
I think something happens quite early on, which means that the world goes skewiff, that the world appears not to have the solidity that you might hope. So sometimes it might be the loss of a parent. Sometimes it might be something involving the, you know, things like adoption. Um, Sometimes it might be, you know, a smaller incident, but nevertheless, an, an, an incident which can have, a, as, as we know, you know, the child, a two-year-old brain, a three-year-old brain. Sometimes what we might as an adult consider to be quite a small uh, affair could be something um, having a major effect on them. So I think very often, art and, and comedy as a whole as well, uh, one of the things the comedian's doing is rewriting the world and controlling it for the period of time that they are on stage or they are writing. Oh, that's that so probably sounds control. very highfalutin. But... No, no. Well, it's, it's a control mechanism. I, lo I love the idea. I mean, I think there are some simple things. I was talking to Dr. Richard Bandler, and uh, he's always had a thing about when he was young, a teacher said to him, you're not musical. And so that went in at a very deep level. And his theory is that when you're told that you're not something, you, you never actually aspire to it or you presume that it's not possible. So do you think that's the same with comedy? You're not funny, you'll never be funny. You're, those things are embedded and then you start to live your life within those parameters. I don't think so actually I don't I think with comedy because it's an act of uh, it's not something that's in the t you know in the curriculum it is an act of, of a strange rebellion very often it, it, it's the rebellion by the quieter child who's not going to end up setting fire to the woodwork class but is instead going to have a punchline about the woodwork teacher you know in the playground and so I think that it less then I, I think very often it is the life belt of a child uh, or even an adult who doesn't think they really have any other skills. They've got nothing else apart from yap, yap, yap. And that's certainly true, I think, of quite a few of the people that I, I know. Um, whereas I do agree in terms of things like music, uh, in terms of science in particular, obviously I've spent, I spend a lot of time talking to people who, who very often weren't into science and have come back to science through some of the things in the last few years. That's very much one. There's a, a, a great author who wrote a book called The Invention of Nature, Andrea uh, Wolfe. And when she, she won the Royal Society Prize and she said, I can't wait to tell my chemistry teacher. And the person was like, oh, great, because the chemistry teacher really encouraged you. She said, no. She said, you can't do science. You don't have a brain that can do this. So now I'm going to get in contact with them and say, oh, by the way, I've just won the Royal Society Prize for my science so that's of course the other side to it is there is sometimes the desire for revenge becomes so great that you you go and do it but i also think the the hardest side in anything is the sense that you have permission to do it especially if it's outside what we consider the normal world so a lot of creative endeavors I think we need to work harder and harder to tell people from different backgrounds, you have permission, you are allowed to be a poet, you are allowed to be a comedian, you are allowed to be a writer, you have a story to tell. I'm just interested from the fact of like, what it sounded like, and I, I'm not putting words in your mouth, is that, that comedians couldn't do anything else, so they had to get smart with their words. And I know hundreds of comedians, you know hundreds of comedians, and some of them have other talents as well, Robin, to be honest Oh, they've with you. got other talents, but I think there is a thing where it just... One, it has an ease to it. I mean, not of course, it's horrible and it's ridiculous and you feel... But you have to do it. Unlike a lot of other worlds, once you're a comedian, you can't walk on stage and say, give me a minute, I'm not really ready yet. 
you have to go and and so you have this it, it's i think very often it's for people with quite flibbity gibbet minds uh where that focus i mean i know all you know all, all novelists talk about the, the the difficulty of writing stuff like that but comics you you don't have a get out clause you have to create now and i think that plays its part in it and of course you're right there's a lot of highly intelligent people uh who have many other skills as well um but comedy has that there is something about the dopamine hit and there is something about there is no other art form where success or failure can be so speedily monitored and that you can walk off and go tonight i mean more often than not of course you walk off and you remember that one punchline that you feel you fluffed and they didn't even know you fluffed but that's all that gigs become about <laughs> yeah there's all of those sides but I, th I think it does go back again a lot to the idea of control the dopamine hit so i mean basically it's the idea of uh, comics as drug addicts basically <laughs> But it is. I mean, there is no bigger drug than getting the laugh coming back at you. And so I, I think there's that addiction idea is actually very relevant to the whole thing. Well, I, was, I would add to that, actually. I think that is also why you can see quite a lot of addiction sometimes in the comedy world is because when the gig ends how do you keep this going how do you keep that feeling going and i think it's a very easy trap especially because of course more often than not when you start you're playing in a bar you're actually in the pub already you don't have to leave work and go to the pub you walk from the stage to the bar so i think a lot of that sometimes plays its part as well what makes you laugh Oh, there's so many. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Laurel and Hardy in terms of the great traditional things. Uh, I, When I was a kid, the books of Douglas Adams made me laugh out loud, and now things like Diary of a Nobody still makes me laugh out loud. Uh, Viz, the comic Viz. I love... Uh, slipping over slapstick right really good i love seeing a pompous person like one of my favorite things of all time is there's uh rick mail in more bad news one of the comic strip presents there is a scene in which he steps in dog excrement uh and it has all what gets me and i sometimes find it like some faulty towers episodes i can't watch as someone who's very anxious and has a lot of frustration that kind of oh god bloody hell bloody hell oh no now it's all over my fingers all of that kind of humor i i adore and then i love uh my friend joanna neary who's very very funny uh comedian does great characters Stuart lee's last show uh was hilarious because of it and the all the silliness of it so I, I love seeing smart people being very silly as well. So I, I find frustration, odd noises. Uh, I love, you know, the things that I watch with my son. Friday Night Dinner is one of my favourite shows of all time. Modern Family is brilliant. Uh, so there's a huge number of things. But I, I, I am a big fan of, of really well done slapstick. And what I love about Laurel and Hardy as well, is, which is what connects a lot of these things, is... I've got a good idea. And from the moment you've heard that, you know, at the end of the 20 minutes, there's Oliver sat in a water butt or in the remnants of a house where a tile has just dropped on his head for the final time. And he just looks at the camera and goes, hmm. And that to me is the most perfect because it's a beautiful thing about humanity, isn't it? We have these brilliant plans. And uh, as we know, the best laid plans of mice and men and Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton and everyone else. Um, so I, I love I love those moments. Oh, no, uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy, just I can watch it again and again. You said you're, you're anxious 
um, thing. And and when you read the book, that I'm a joke and so are you, that sort of, you're very honest about that, that anxious coming out. Does, if I asked you to tell me a funny story about something that's happened to you, would it be something that uh, brought that out? Or is it something else? Do, does the anxious part of your life lead to the comedy? Yeah, it, the anxiety doesn't actually... I mean, in terms of overtly, I don't think it necessarily appears, except it does appear from the moment someone watches me on stage and sees that I have a very frenetic mind and I kind of... Um, but the the anxiety is such a... It, it's an interesting thing because I didn't... It's partly since I wrote the book that I've realised the overarching anxiety, which is lots of different things that I thought I had and lots of you then realize are all one thing which is anxiety and and this is why i become fascinated by the disparity between uh, the inner and the outer is because lots of people will say especially to comedians or, or 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 singers or things like that oh but you're so confident and of course that is the 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 mask of it all isn't it which is you know in a conversation with you now I have a perpetual voice in my head which is saying, was that okay? Was that the wrong thing to say? Does Paul want me to do a story now? Will it, if I don't do the story now, is that going to be the wrong thing to do? Is that uh, So that voice, and when I do Monkey Cage, for instance, which is a show we've done nearly 150 episodes of, I have not got more relaxed. I am more worried now than I was... 150 episodes ago because and and on stage when I'm performing I hear the voices all the time uh, and so you have I, I used to say there's, there's basically there's, there's on stage there's five voices in, in in my head there's the one that comes out which is roughly what you they hear coming through the microphone right there's there's uh there's roughly the same um but it's got little tweaks when it actually finally comes into the microphone then there's a second voice that goes I've come up with an idea I've come up with an idea why don't you do this idea this will be a really good good idea then there's a third voice that goes don't do that idea Glasgow on a Tuesday you'll look like an utter idiot don't no put it away put it away and then there's a fourth voice, which is basically my mother saying, why did you do this? You could have just had a job in an office and everything would have been fine. Why are you seeking the approbation of strangers? And then the fifth voice is basically just screaming. And I would like to say that that's pretend, but it's not. It really is. You know, that, that bit of the number. It was interesting seeing Lee Mack talking the other day about the number of voices. And, and he is such a fast comedian and so utterly brilliant yeah. on, on shows like Would I Lie to You? But it, again, I, I think... Of of late, it's been interesting to see that quite a few comedy friends of mine uh, have been um, diagnosed with ADHD, and I, I I'm I'm kind of I'm not really certain about that whole world of and diagnosis and stuff because I sometimes wonder that one of the things that you do as a comedian is you drive yourself into a position that would actually appear to be on a knife edge of mental health, whatever, because the way that you use the voices in your head, the fact that each night you are seeking the approbation of strangers, you're going into a strange room, you're putting on a social show, you are then going straight from that pretty much back to a hotel somewhere where you're just on your own. So you, you, you go from an incredible level of narcissistic gregariousness into a, a solitary, just, just sat there watching whatever's on telly at 1am you know in in the holiday inn and and so i th but i find it interesting because i think what comedy can do is take a lot of those things 
because you know when people talk about the tragedy of comics i mean one of the reasons i wrote the book was i was doing a show about mental health on the night we find out that that robin williams had taken his life and um and sometimes when people put that narrative of oh comedians are all very you know it, it's almost comedy that made people sometimes do you know for instance take their own life and yet i think more often than not comedy is an incredible coping mechanism for people who've got if we weren't doing comedy where would we put all these voices in our head I think, as a psychologist, I think that that everybody's wearing masks. Mm. We're just doing it writ large, if you like, and so so the anxiety or, or the the imposter syndrome or whatever, I think, just comes with the territory because you're brighter and you think more about it. You understand what's happening, but this is there for everyone. Oh, I think, yeah. Very much so. I mean, that's part of the point of the book, I hope, which is um, comics are used as these examples because there is this interesting contrast. There is this thing where, oh, how could someone who makes everyone laugh be sad? So that's a much better story than how can someone who has a job that's reasonably miserable be miserable? So, but I think the truth of it is that these, th and that's why, you know, if it wasn't true, we wouldn't be able to communicate to audiences. We wouldn't, you know, th th there's a really fascinating thing when sometimes you, you talk of, of ideas of mental health and you talk from a personal perspective and a very upbeat kind of, hey, you know, who else has this thought? And the realisation in the room, you can genuinely sometimes feel 50% of the room going, oh my God, this is... I really think because this is the lucky thing and I think why actually comedians aren't nearly as bad people as uh, many, many people might imagine is we are in the fortunate position where we are able to express the, the hidden thoughts, the taboo thoughts that others keep in forever. I mean, that was one of the things that I, I remember having a conversation with someone and starting to worry that there are some people who live their whole life without ever actually saying what's really in their head. And what a prison that must be. And then you see, when you see the anger that is expressed on social media or by newspaper journalists, when you see all that fury and so much, I think, of that anger comes from an ultimate fear of whether it's shame or guilt that grows and blossoms in the mind and is never expressed. It is a gift to be able to actually get those thoughts out of your head. And if you can make them funny, guess what you 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 get the dopamine hit so that's that that is a gift um is everyone funny i do think everyone has a story but i don't think everyone's got a funny story i genuinely do think there are some people that i'm sure you've met them there are some people who just don't seem to be able to understand humor at all there's there's a great line one of my favorite films is a film by todd salons i don't know if you've seen it. it's called happiness um philip seymour hoffman amongst others and there's a beautiful it's about three sisters it's quite a dark film actually but it looks like a comedy it's one of those interesting films that if you go and see it in the cinema some people are laughing and some people are going do you really know what's going on but there's a great moment at the end where the sister who's the kind of the biggest loser says something and her other sister bursts out laughing. And then she looks, she goes, oh, oh, I'm, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. And the sister says, but I'm not laughing. And that 
to me is one of my favourite uh, because that there are some people who uh, and, and again that almost does feel you know when we were talking about nature versus nurture sometimes that does feel like that's nature sometimes it feels like there is something genetic something which right from the start just has not been there yeah well that's why I asked because you know nature nurture has it been knocked out of them at a very young age what what's happened why do you think people fail to be funny sometimes it's by appearing to try too hard i think that's the thing there's there's, there's two things you know people love i i, I think when, when jokes go wrong sometimes it's you're just not understood some sometimes you're playing to the wrong crowd and i mean that to everyone not just on stage sometimes you're in the wrong room so often it's about context as well it's uh we again because we've made the joke in our head we've forgotten that we haven't necessarily given them the setup if you see what i mean the whole social setup of it so for me authenticity is really important i really even if it turns out it's the old i can't remember who first said it henny youngman i think is technically the first person who uh you know who, who talked about that way of, of, of being authentic the, you, you have to be authentic and once you can fake that you can do anything you want <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it's very interesting because there's the mickey flanagan story about when he first started all of us started at the comedy store and doing all that but he was doing an open spot and he'd worked on the circuit quite a lot and he was doing well. And he got his first open spot at the comedy store and he went along and he thought he delivered it exactly as did it. And as he came off, Mark Thomas just said to him and he said it was so important to his development. He said they didn't trust you. And that's where what you're saying about authenticity comes in they've got to trust that you mean it and you mean well and you want to connect with them on that level if you're just you know you're you're just a heckler from the stage it doesn't work see that's interesting isn't it because that's why i think so many comics at some of those late night clubs and stuff why they do pick on that one person because actually that's not about trust i don't think that's about that's a different relationship that has a relationship that is built on threat and and i sometimes i you know I, i've watched comics where i think you don't even know the room yet and you've decided this is the front row and you've decided this but there's a beautiful piece uh um oh man what's he called there's there's this really great um short film uh of someone basically pretending being the person in the front row and what's going through their mind as they sit in the front row and the terror and i've seen loads of uh comics at alistair green alistair green does it it's very very funny look at look for him on instagram and various other places he does these beautiful sometimes one minute two minute little pieces and this piece is just just a man sat in the front don't pick on me don't pick on me don't pick on me don't pick on me please don't pick on me please don't pick on me and the way and the whole in two minutes he creates a tragedy and it's beautifully done. And I've seen quite a few comics going, oh, my God, I feel so guilty now. I feel so bad because I've realised what is going through their heads. So what would the world be like without humour? It's really... Uh, we would be insane. It reminds me, there's a book called Nod by Adrian Barnes, which is a great book all about the where humans can no longer sleep. And the world is mad within 11 days, of course, because 11 days without sleep. So the whole whole of society collapses and i would say the same would be with with humor because it is such a vital valve i i think humanity so many different ideas of what we are is explained by the fact that we need to make jokes you touched upon it do you find yourself funny because 
I find myself ridiculous. I, I think I know myself too well to be able to, you know, I laugh at myself and I find myself preposterous. Um, and I find myself very easy to, to mock. Um, but I, don't, I wouldn't, I, I, I would find it very hard to define, do I find myself, you know, I'm, I, I don't go to bed chuckling about, <laughs> about you know, you old girl, I can't believe you got up to that. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, well you, but you, you just touched on the it's important to laugh at yourself. Why do you think that that is from a, a neuroscience point of view or a psychology point of view? I think because we are absurd. We're utterly upset. If you take yourself too... I mean, this is a, there's an interesting thing about taking yourself seriously because it doesn't mean that you're flippant. It's a different thing. I think trying to put this in words is sometimes quite hard. That you need to 
consider yourself to be absurd, but you need to take life seriously. You take life seriously enough that sometimes you have to laugh at it as well. That's how, you know, how seriously you can take it. But I think, yeah, th th that balance of going, this is all utterly ridiculous. To know you're alive, to know you're going to die, to uh, all of those. I mean, that's the main thing. You know, it, it, it almost is the myth of Sisyphus, isn't it? You know, that whole thing of the, the biggest problem, the biggest question of, of, of philosophy is, you know, whether to live or whether to die. Obviously, you step into different worlds and, you know, you'll know people who work in offices, work on building sites, work and everything. Do you think people laugh enough in the workplace? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think, again, it's almost you're not meant to have fun, are you? That if you if you have fun and as we know actually if you've had a good laugh you will probably get back to to work much better than if you're still going oh the so, so I think again I I I think comedy and laughter all of these things are extremely underrated they are things that we need to spend more time uh, focusing on uh, but at the same time when we focus on them we don't want to make them too much something that is focused on so this is the problem you need to work out a way where you're not being told and don't forget uh, every time in this office between 5 past 11 and 20 past 11 we have fun joke uh, 15 minutes and uh, everyone says a fun joke and we have a lot of fun because that's the other thing about fun and jokes is that you can't say uh, and uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this because I'm now going to tell you a joke if you start saying so, I, th I think you're probably going to laugh in about um, two minutes, 12 seconds. So keep an eye out for that. It still has to catch you unawares as well. So that's part of the difficulty. So how do you foster an atmosphere that allows for it? So if you, you know what? Don't advice... take yourself so There's so many companies where you have to take seriously. the. F there's so many absurd companies that basically do almost nothing. Absolute nonsense, right? And they have to take themselves seriously. A bit like the dictator. If they don't take themselves seriously, they'll realise how ridiculous it is. So many different professions are utterly preposterous in what they are. <laughs> and if you eventually go, isn't this absurd what we have to count for a living? Have you finished the count? Yes, I've finished counting it today accepting its absurdity doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing it it actually is a tremendous relief to go oh you find it but yeah it is a bit weird i was watching an episode of what's that wandavision this new series of marvel thing very odd start to it um where the first three episodes are done each one in the style of a sitcom so it's the marvel universe but the first one is done like a 1950s black and white sitcom and the job of the main character he tries to find out from everyone else who works in the office what they do. And they go, well, we, we work out how much is going in and how much goes out. How much what? Well, that's what we do. And that, that bit of then going, so, so do you actually know? We don't know what we do. And and I think all of those different things are people. This is the problem with humour is it's always a fear that it undermines something so much it destroys it. But very often it undermines it just enough to make it bearable to keep doing. Oh, yeah, that that's perfect. So if you were to give advice to uh, people in business and you had to make a business case, you know, how that for humour, what would you include? It's a really hard one, I think, because, again, that thing I was just saying about taking yourself seriously, because we worry about reputation and business, unfortunately, is in a lot of work. Reputation is all what it's about. And it's horrible and it's pompous and it's nonsensical. Um, and it's hugely damaging because it means that everyone becomes this kind of, you know, the, the, the figure. They, they become the dictator that can't be mocked. And what I think is within business, take everything less serious. Still do things. It's, it's like someone described reality. Uh, they, they said that uh, um, reality should be taken seriously, but not literally. 
which I thought was a great description of reality and our, our problems with our. And I think in some ways that an interpretation of that is how business should be dealt with, which is taking part of taking it seriously is be able to take it so seriously you can also make a joke of it as well that you understand what you're doing so well that you can go and this bit is preposterous and i know i shouldn't even be asking you to do this and i know you're thinking why are we doing this and do you know what i don't know why we are doing this but that person's told us to do it so you know that kind of reaction that acceptance again it's the acceptance of the inner thoughts it's the acceptance of i have no idea why i'm telling these this room of people to do this if you actually occasionally have the honesty to say, I'm not really sure why we're doing this, but apparently the evidence is this, this, so we might as well. You humanise what you're doing. Oh, well, humour as a humaniser is, I, I think, one of the key tenants of the whole Humorology project. We have to sell this to big business. So how are we going to do that unless we have, for them, a return on investment? Well, this is the problem with big business. This is the problem with... So is as we know every company is filled with i'm not probably not going to say this on things who you might want to sell to but every company is filled with people who do absolutely nothing every company is filled with people who you know in the arts industry what you always find out what are the two most important things in an arts industry an audience and an act that's what you need and yet it is surrounded by other people who make more money than everyone else in that and they don't make anything so i think that's one of the problems is that sometimes when you face up to humor in the workplace you might have to face up to the fact that you possibly should be redundant uh so this is does not sell the podcast to who i know you need to sell to but i think it is you know that i i have an obsession with meetings people there are people who just you know what if you want to all that time remove one meeting a day because you don't need the five meetings you got to remove that one meeting you know what just watch an episode of man down watch some laurel and hardy together watch something in a room together where you all find what you laugh at and just and that sense of bringing people together through laughter not through the division of where are they and that that i think would be an amazing thing i mean there's two you know the I have a rule, which is I don't do three meetings if nothing's happened after the first two meetings. So when we're working on projects, if someone says, can we have another meeting? I go, well, nothing's happened after the first two. When something's happened from the first two, then we need another meeting, but we don't need another meeting. So that's what I would say is remove at least one meeting and then uh, every week or even every day, different person in the office brings in the thing that they find funniest, that they delight in, uh, or you watch it on Netflix or whatever, and you just laugh in a room. That's right. And it's the ultimate bonding thing, isn't it? It brings people together. So actually, and especially that I think most companies on some level have to be creative. Yeah. So surely you have in order to be creative, you have to allow the brain to go to different places rather than be siloed. Well, as we know, you know, the best ideas never come up when you're staring at the screen trying to write the joke. They come up when you walk out, when you go for, you know, you go for a coffee, whatever. And I think that point of saying there, because I think we've become so hooked on believing we're being productive. And that's one of the reasons that we have this meetings obsession is because a meeting means you've done something today, but you haven't done anything. You've had a meeting. That's not the same. I mean, I'm obsessed by that. That's why I run one of the things that I do with my mate Trent. We make about four programmes a week and we make documentaries and all that. And we just make them. Uh, we don't make them particularly for profit or anything like that. We just make them because we're addicted to making things. We want to create things. And I think that is a really important part of it as well. That, in fact, there is something more creative about having 
having all sat in a room and laughed at something, you know, whether it's rude and strange or Laurel and Hardy, whatever it is, there's something far more creative that means that, that when you leave that room, like, you know, we, when we're during homeschooling with my son, you know, at, at lunchtime, we might watch something like an episode of Friday Night Dinner. And we love it and we laugh. And then he goes back to work and I go back to work. But something has happened which has shaken the day which is just, you know, it's moved. It, it feels like we've got more neural connections, positive neural connections available to us now because we've just watched something wonderful and absurd. Well, there you go. There's your return on investment. More neural connections. What's true? I think it, it does make people more creative. I genuinely think every time we think far too literally, or we have these things where we pretend we're doing some Edward de Bono exercise, but you're not. <laughs> you're still thinking literally about what you think are your business problems at hand. And actually, you need to be thinking about something that is you don't even realise might be attached to it. You, you know, you, you don't, you're just in another world. And in that other world, world sometimes while you're there is when you find the solution to the world over here well and it do you allow the unconscious to do what it should do because you know I, I, and you will know this that the, the conscious mind can only hold between five and nine pieces of information at any one time the unconscious mind can hold millions so why not utilize the unconscious mind uh, to get to that creative uh, end have you ever taken a joke too far and cross the line you know when i was younger i i think too often in a social situation i was and i'm sure i've done it since and i'm sure i may well do it again should we ever have social situations again but uh there are times where i'd, I'd leave a room and i think i'm not sure they were happy I don't think, yeah, and that, and that, that's, I, I think more often than not, it's not so much been on stage, it has been in social situations where you're all playing the hierarchy game and you don't realise that that person's going to go home and they're going to feel so sad and so undermined. But isn't it part of the comedian's thing that in order to know where the limit is, you have to push the limit slightly? Oh yeah, I think you should. I don't think you should ever have it again. One of the joys of doing comedy, I think, is it's the even though I talked about the five voices in my head, I have the least control over them, uh, apart from the voice that's there typing away, going, "Here's an idea. Here's an idea." And sometimes you throw out that idea. In fact, more often than not, I've found that idea that you you barely even remember saying, and then someone comes up to the bar and went, that thing you did about that Dachshund in a kimono. And you go, Dachshund in a kimono? That wasn't me. And then when it was you, it was. Um, I think though those moments are the most, it's almost like, it, that's almost dream time. You know, the, the REM sleep, it feels like it's REM sleep, but on stage. The brain is fully active, but actually the things that are coming out are not in the same way as the control in a, in a social group. Well, I, I think that's a very good piece of advice for anybody who's who's actually speaking to a group as well. And, you know, we have a lot of people who are trying to take something away from this. And I think they'll get a lot of tips. But actually, one of the things is that if you put your attention outward, you allow the unconscious brain. The first, the, the first chapter in my first book was called It's All About Them, only because I noticed that actually I was doing my best work and I think you as a comic doing your best work is when you are not consciously doing the work and going, I'm going to tell a, 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 a set up here, I'm going to do, you're allowing the flow state as they call it in sport. You are just allowing it to happen and that's when the magic happens. That's the alchemy of it. 
I, I would say actually that's interesting in terms of business presentations or even best man speeches or anything like that yeah. is don't worry about reading all the words that you've typed you know you because actually you will gain more and if you lose your place and you've forgotten what you're going to say you've got it there and you can go back to that um that moment of just freeing yourself from because that then everyone knows you've written it all down and yet yes you've you've said the exactly where they're expecting the growth to happen and they've expected this but just move away from that and talk to people as as you I, I mean I, I find it fascinating the fear because it's one of the only fears that I don't have obviously I still have a fear of it but but it's not like most of my other anxieties is the one that's in the top three you know which is public speaking that's the one thing that I do I can't abseil I wouldn't go potholing you know I don't really like leaving the house that much but you know I can public I can do public <laughs> speaking and that bit of just going just talk just talk and the worst that can happen is not nearly as bad as you as you imagine, and and you won't lose you won't lose face. You know, I, I've seen lots of people do presentations where I thought you never looked up, yeah. you were never a human. You were you could have actually just recorded that at home and just sent a cassette or put it on USB or whatever. I say to people, look forward to stuff going wrong, because mm. psychologically. That means, because that's not, by the way, when you're having the most fun, if you're in that state, and that's probably when you're at your funniest, is because you humanise yourself, don't you? Everybody, you know, but if you accept it, the audience, whether that's an audience of one or 10,000, they love that. Nothing an audience like more than seeing someone wear a false moustache where the glue starts to come off. You know, that's the, that's their favourite thing. They're, you know, when you Graham Norton, you know, the number of times on his show, things like that, where you actually think, do you know what? They said, don't don't use too much glue. And the delight people have, because this isn't meant to happen. Like when you see really good quality corpsing, you know, obviously Pete and Dud were, were well known for that. You know, Rick and Aid, that, that bit where this is it's you it's because you've been let in you're not meant to see this bit this isn't how it's meant to go well yeah and in sitcoms they sometimes build that in don't mm. they they build in the mistake just so the audience feel i'm i'm seeing something that nobody else yes. has seen it's wonderful have you ever gotten yourself out of trouble by using humor well that's interesting no i've only mainly got myself in it's not normally been that that way, I think. Yeah. Really? I, I, I think I'm just trying to think if I ever have. I don't drive, so I've never had to make a policeman laugh or anything like that, you know. So <laughs> uh, not personal, but I have found that thing at funerals and things like that. So that emotional trouble that people can be in, I've found that it's been very useful for that, you know, do, doing eulogies or just sat at a table and not being scared to make hopefully the right kind of jokes because that's the so, so in that way of trouble i would say in terms of other people for emotion which i know is not really what you asked but that that i found it very very useful that bit of not being scared to say something that is not taking things entirely seriously and that is you know i think it's always an interesting thing philippa perry the the therapist talks about i remember once she said you know if you're laughing at something actually or making a joke about something it means you haven't necessarily really accepted it and then actually we talked more about that she said that's not entirely true actually there are different forms of jokes there are jokes which acknowledge the horror of a situation at the same time as also and, and that's the important thing finding the right kind of joke in those situations which can seem very very desperate well yeah and isn't that the skill is is knowing 
where it is. Actually, I, I think that the, the best comedians and well, the best leaders, both everything really are the best listeners. Because really, and I'm talking about listening off the top, looking at people and going, are they ready for this? And you, you know, as a, as a comic, you must look at the audience and uh, on some conscious, unconscious level and think, will they play? Will they go with this thought? And what you're describing there is, is that um, attention to the other people, rather than being in your own head and go, going, this will be funny. You know, you're actually looking and listening to other people and going, can I take them on that journey to make them feel better? That's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Which is that after a certain number of years, you don't even know you've learned that. You only knew you hadn't learned it because of the number of times you made that mistake. You haven't noticed that you've learned it when sometimes you're just playing around for two hours with an audience. And then you realise, oh, I told that story today and I don't normally and I wonder why that was. And you can't. So that's another thing as well. As, as you said, it's going into that kind of that flow state. It's going into that state where and and again, it's nowhere else can I do that. I can't do sport. I can't do most of that. Anything, I can't play an instrument. I think a lot of that is because I'm quite hypervigilant. So I'm very aware of myself at all times. The only time I can lose that awareness is by talking to people. And then, yeah, and that is, an, it's such a joy to, I've, I've talked to quite a few comics about that time ago. Yeah, when we talk about our early days ago, we wondered why that joke didn't work. And then we really, because sometimes you can return to a joke just as a little game. And you think, oh, I tried that joke five times. It never worked. And then you just realise you were the wrong age, you were the wrong person, you were the wrong personality on stage. And now you can go back to it. And that's an interesting thing to, again, see all of the unconscious things that are going on with an audience, all of their perceptions of who, you know, like I remember doing, I, I did Hammersmith Apollo, did two charity gigs in, in, in a week. And one of them was uh, the Douglas Adams 60th birthday. They did a celebration of his life. And I remember walking on and thinking, I can do anything I want tonight because they kind of have some sense that I'm a guy who does some science shows on Radio 4 and whatever, so I can do my favourite stuff. And I started and it was fine. And it was like, yeah, I had a really nice time. And then a week later, I was doing one, I think it was for Scope, and uh, Ben Elton was comparing it and Al Murray was on and stuff. And as I walked on, I went, no one knows. Uh, There's no context to me whatsoever. No one knows who I am. And what I thought I was going to be able to do, I can't do. Because when I'm playing to an audience, a bit like when you're on tour, sometimes you're on tour and then you go straight into just doing a gig, again, like a benefit gig or something like that, and you realise all context is gone. All those people who come to a room knowing who you are or having some idea of what to expect. Um, and then you're... And, and I remember as I got to the mic going, right, I'm going to talk about this now because I know this cuts through all of this is the broadest thing that I have. This is something which will allow me, might buy me the time to do the things I wanted to do. It wasn't stuff that I was I didn't want to do necessarily, but it was just a bit I wasn't expecting to do. And that, that's an interesting thing, again, of knowing your, of, of just going, hang on a minute, this crowd, this is the context. That's uh, in psychological terms, that's unconscious competence, isn't it? Really, where mm. you, you, you know, because you start off from conscious incompetence and then you get to the, the pinnacle, which is unconscious competence, where you just know, you just feel, and you've learned to read the audience so well. And, and that's why I always say to people, really, it's all about them. Put your attention on them and allow that to happen. And, and with experience, um, you become great. 
We now reach the part of our show, the end part of our show, unfortunately, uh, which is called Quick Fire Questions. Oh, here we go. Quick Fire Questions! Who's the funniest business person that you've met? I, do you know, what? I, I'll tell you who it was, actually. It was my brother-in-law, Alan, uh, who had such a level of kind of just joie de vivre and bonhomie. Unfortunately, he died quite a few years ago now. I remember doing the eulogy at his funeral and uh, my sister said, make it as funny as possible. And it was one of those things where I came off the, out of the pulpit and, and I did have a little of my mind was going, storm that one, storm that eulogy. None of the materials usable for any other. But I think it was Alan. He had a real sense of... You know, when he walked into a room, people just thought, oh, how delightful. This is going to be fun. So, yeah, oh. it's my brother-in-law, Alan. What book makes you laugh? Well, I mentioned Diary of a Nobody. I love the a Diary of, of Adrian Mole is another one as well. Sue Townsend, such such, such a, a a great author. Um, uh, there's uh, I'm trying to think of ones that I've read recently, but that in particular, I think Diary of Adrian Mole and Diary of a Nobody by George and Weeding Grossmith are books that make me laugh over and over again. What film makes you laugh? Now you've mentioned a couple already. Is there anything else? Oh, so I mean, ones that have actually made me snore ice cream out of my nose would be Blazing Saddles, for instance. I, I think you know Mel Brooks is another one you know when we were talking about authenticity you see Mel Brooks he's full of love that's another really important thing for me he's full of love and I think most of my favourite people the, the the love shows and Mel Brooks definitely has that when you see him interviewed or when you, when you saw him with Carl Reiner who of course sadly died last year but the two of them together you think these are people and they care about the world and they care about other human beings they don't just care about themselves wonderful what word makes you laugh Robin? Oh, I don't know. I've 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 been trying to find a way of using bellicose recently, and I haven't. It hasn't worked yet. I haven't found the right way. But bellicose, I I particularly like. There is uh, um, uh, and uh, nuncle for to drill for tunch. Bless you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's from the um, young ones. The uh, oh, yeah. I'd forgotten that everything. Um, taking it. The other end of the spectrum, what's not funny? I think there's nothing that doesn't have the possibility of being funny in some ways, but I do think there are places where you really have to think, why would you be making that joke? So I do think there's a huge number of areas involving tragedy, involving death, involving younger, things like that. I just think, you know, sometimes when I see some of the edgy comics who go in that direction, and I think, why? So... I think, you know, you should never go out there and think, I I mustn't do this and I mustn't do that. But when you get onto certain subjects, you should think, why am I doing this? And why am I saying that? And am I happy if at the bar afterwards someone comes up to me and t- we're not happy, but will, will I feel that I'm still in the right if someone approaches me in tears? Yeah. And sometimes you will. Sometimes you, you won't feel happy about it. But and so sorry, that's a very long answer. But I think that that's the way I I, I view it. There's there's a lot of things where I just think, why why would I want to make a joke on that? Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Funny, I think. You know, that's it. I don't because I don't I don't consider myself. You know, the the point is, if I wanted to consider myself clever, I'd stop doing shows with particle physicists. <laughs> because that shows you up immediately you know i mean and and i think I've, I've found a nice place to be where you know i describe myself as a professional idiot that's kind of what i do i'm i'm normally the stupidest person in the room because I've, i'm in these rooms with these people with incredible minds 
And uh, it's nice to know that, yeah, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be, they're not going to go, hang on a minute, say that again. I think you've finally found uh, a law of the universe that unites quantum mechanics with, uh, you know, that, that gravity, that last. That's not going to happen. But I can do a joke about something like that. And that's what that's what I've got on my side. So I'd rather be, yeah. Yeah, but they are probably looking at you going, I wish I could do that. I See, can that's do- the funny thing, isn't it? We briefly mentioned imposter syndrome, and that's something everyone should know, especially in business, because I know this happens a lot, which is most, an enormous number of people, and very often people who are very high flyers, do not, you know, I've met, I think I mentioned it in the book, I've met Nobel Prize winners who I've, who they've said I couldn't do what you do and I go but you've won the Nobel Prize you've changed the potential of humanity yes yes I can do that that's because if your brain is able to do something more often than not you consider it a very marginal thing because you can do it that's why watching a great piece of music being performed to me is always a, a, a shamanic spell because that's so beyond my reach. So what that person is doing is a magic spell. So that imposter thing, I think once you start, that again is the importance of honesty as well. That once we start telling each other, do you know what? I was so nervous about doing this and I don't really feel that I'm necessarily the right person for this job and I'm going to try as hard as I can. If only we could have more language than that, as opposed to, well, I suppose the one problem with me is that I'm a perfectionist, right? If we could get rid of that and have a greater honesty of, of sometimes our anxieties, we would be much happier i think that's absolutely true and i think genius is always something that we can't do ourselves Mm. the final question in the show which not really a question it's it's desert island gags you can only take one gag with you to a desert island what is it oh that's really hard you know what it might be i'm trying to think Harry Hill and John Hegley are two of the people that have made me laugh the most. Actually, the thing that's made me laugh most recently uh, in terms of when I was able to go and watch live comedy, I mentioned Stuart Lee at the beginning. Stuart Lee doing about 12 minutes of just making noises when he shows you what would actually be happening if Ricky Gervais was saying the unsayable is one of the most brilliantly preposterous routines that I've seen. And I was sat with my wife and both of us had those moments. You know, when you're looking at each other going, this needs to stop now. It hurts. And I think, you know, that and and John Hegley doing a dance with some string, those are that. So I'll, I'll take Stuart making those noises. Well, that, that's wonderful. And unfortunately, this needs to stop now. Uh, we could talk forever. Robin, thank you for sharing your wisdom, your wit, and absolutely being a wonderful guest. Robin Ince, thank you for being on the Humorology Podcast. Thank you. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.